guys, and welcome back to another episode of Food School Smarter, Stronger, Leaner podcast on a mission to inspire a world where food makes us better. Guys, food does make us better, certain kind of food. But also, what is really important for a human body to stay healthy and fit and performing at high levels physically and mentally, we need to move. We need exercise. And sometimes in life, we feel like we don't necessarily have the time or luxury of time for uh, these kind of activities. You know, we have our work, we have businesses, we have families, we have kids, we have different projects. Uh, we can barely find time for sleep, uh, let alone exercise. But guys, if you are a human being, and chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you are one, you need to move, you need to exercise. But you don't necessarily need to spend a lot of time doing that. And today on this podcast, you're going to hear our conversation with Dr. Martin Gibala, um, who in short is the guy you want to talk to if you want to talk about efficient exercise, time efficient exercise, or high intensity interval training, or just interval training. So Dr. Martin Gibala is the guy to talk to. He's a professor and the Faculty of Science Research Chair in Integrative Exercise Physiology at McMaster University in Canada. His research examines the mechanistic basis of exercise responses in humans and associated health impacts. Dr. Gibala's science communication efforts include a best-selling book on the topic of time-efficient exercise. So the name of the book is The One-Minute Workout. I'm, by the way, is a fan of this book. Great science that will motivate you to move in a more efficient and effective way and do it regularly. So The One-Minute Workout. Science shows a way to get fit that's smarter, faster, shorter. He also co-teaches a massive open online course available on Coursera, Hacking Exercise for Health. So, if you want to know more about high-intensity interval training, if you want to know more about efficient, effective training for performance, for health, to get fitter that, as you find out on this episode, is highly underestimated getting fitter part for your life quality, for health, and for so many other things. So how to train better, more effectively for health, for performance, to manage your body composition, your calories better, uh, what are the best ways to train for athletes who don't necessarily have all the time they'd like to have for training, should you do uh, short interval trainings or a longer training? Should you do this high-intensity interval training instead of your cardio or with your cardio, instead of your strength training or with your strength training? Uh, there are so many things we're going to unpack on this in this episode. You can know more about interval training than probably 99% of people out there, uh, and that will help you to exercise more efficiently, time efficiently, getting results uh, fast, faster, better, 
uh, and hopefully enjoying your exercise practice more. So guys, without further ado, please tune in to our conversation with Dr. Martin Gibala. Welcome to the show, the second time through. It's, um, you know, last time we spoke, it was January 2018, so it's like more than three years. Um, thank you for joining me again to share with our listeners, you know, what's the latest new in the world of uh, fitness and exercise and movement so people can use it in their practice to, you know, get results that they want health and fitness in a more effective way. So thank you. Yeah, fair enough. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me back. And I, I realize I owe, I owe you a short bio and a photo. Uh, I will send that after our conversation today. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's not urgent. So uh, whenever you have time over the, over the weekend, the um, end of the week, so that would be perfect. Um, so let me start the recording and we can then continue our conversation, if you don't mind. And if you don't mind, just before we get into it, can you remind me again, you know, your your typical audience, your typical listeners, I, I think I have a sense, you know, probably fairly, uh, you know, people who are interested, obviously, in uh, fitness and, and nutrition, but can you just give me a sense of your typical listeners? Mm-hmm. So, uh, mostly millennials, um, early 30s, late 30s, uh, into fitness, health, and performance, uh, also mostly from North America and Canada, but also I have quite a few listeners in Australia, in Southeast Asia, in Europe. And uh, I guess the most interesting topics are how to be more effective with their training to get the results uh, when it comes to metabolic health, performance, mental and physical, and also uh, body recompositioning. Okay, great. No, thanks for that. And, you know, obviously I'm fairly comfortable talking about, uh, I'm sure, the questions you'll ask. And if uh, we're going in the wrong direction, just let me know. And uh, if I'm uncomfortable, I'll, I'll let you know that. But like I say, generally, uh, uh, this is uh, all, all good stuff. I have a sense of uh, where we're probably going. And uh, hopefully it's of value to your listeners. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of value. And, you know, this recording, it can be edited. So if you don't want something to be in the final, you know, recording that you just let me know, and I'm going to edit it. And as for the questions, you know, I usually try to give you as much time and opportunity to talk um, as possible. And what I think, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, not so important at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, fair enough. But uh, yeah, thanks again for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you for your time. So, dear listener, welcome to Food School Podcast. And today I have a guest for you that I'm really excited about. That's actually the second time I'm having this guest on the podcast. So we are having today, we are chatting today with Martin Gibala, who is a professor in at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada, and currently serves as chair of the Department of Kinesiology. For those of you who don't know, it's basically the science about human movement. And also Martin is the author of the One Minute Workout, Science Shows a Way to Get Fit That's Smarter, Faster, and Shorter. And I'm very excited to have Martin today with us um, because all of us, we want to 
do things in a more effective and efficient way. And for sure, we are into training, we're into fitness, into health, but we'd like to know how to do it better and what the science has to say about that. So without further ado, Martin, welcome, and thank you for joining me on the show today. Uh, thank you for having me back. Uh, Martin, so let's just jump into it right away. Uh, last time we spoke, it was January 2018, so basically three years ago, and we talked a lot about what was you know, known back then about high-intensity interval training and how in many um, areas it's a much better way to get results more effective. So what's new, what happened, you know, since then? Um, what are some new major developments that you can share with us today? Well, I guess we've had a global pandemic and that's uh, <laughs> overlapped a little bit with some interest in, in interval training. I think at the time, even when we spoke, you know, and let me just start by saying, clearly, interval training has been around for a long time. You know, athletes used it at the turn of the century to compete successfully in uh, Olympic uh, running events. And in some ways, we tend to rediscover interval training every decade or so, at least from a, a scientific uh, perspective. So clearly, there's a long scientific and, and athletic history related to interval training. You know, but fast forward to a couple of years ago, uh, you mentioned the word efficiency. Certainly, I, I think there's some efficiency in terms of time. So with interval training, you can potentially get to a place faster or with a less total time commitment in terms of exercise. So whether that's uh, fitness or whether that's potentially some changes in, in, in body composition. But I think really what's happened over the last three years, there's been a growing interest in taking interval training outside of the laboratory. And so what I mean by that is a lot of scientific studies have been conducted inside a laboratory using either very specialized equipment or at least uh, modalities like cycle ergometers and things like that. And there's been a real interest in taking it out of the lab and looking at things like bodyweight style training or stair climbing and mm -hmm. these simple practical strategies that people can utilize on their own uh, without the need for for specialized equipment. And of course, you know, personal trainers have advocated bodyweight training for a long time, but I think now there's increasing scientific evidence around uh, the benefits of bodyweight style training. Previously, when I traveled, I used to call them hotel room workouts, uh, but now increasingly they're workouts I think that people do in their living rooms or or their basements. Um, there, there, you know, there's many other aspects that I'm sure we can uh, that we can get into, but I, I would say that's been one major development. Uh, and this whole notion of uh, what's been termed exercise snacks. So mm -hmm. these very brief bouts of vigorous exercise, we're talking, uh, you know, a, a few flights of stair climbing or a short period of a bodyweight training that might uh, take 10 minutes in total uh, to do the workout. And these have invariably termed exercise snacks, and, and they seem to be getting a lot of attention uh, right now, again, because many of us are out of our normal fitness routines, or at least maintaining our previous routines has become much more challenging uh, in this reality of, of lockdowns. Uh, and, you know, the access mm -hmm. to specialized equipment is is not there for a lot of individuals. Yeah, you know, thank you for sharing this. Um, well, I absolutely love the idea of exercise snacking. That's the only kind of snacking that I'm fond of. <laughs> And uh, for me personally, it means actually to do every 30 minutes, I try to do a few movements like a few burpees, squats, um, sit-ups, and um, I just feel 
so much better. Like my brain seems to work so much better. And physically, I just feel so much more energetic when I do, you know, this exercise snacks on a regular basis. Um, and also, yeah, you're right. Uh, right now, for example, I'm in London and everything is closed and probably going to be closed till, I don't know, April or something. And the only thing that saved my fitness, uh, and I think also like my mental health, was uh, those kind of workouts that I can perform with my body weight or with minimum equipment, like some resistant bands, you know, or whatever is available, like chairs and bottles or <laughs> uh, some dumbbells. Um, and the only option I had was, you know, those um, high intensity um, interval training kind of bodyweight workouts, basically. And that seems to be working really well. Yeah, as you allude to, you know, there's certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence for this. And, and many individuals who are interested in fitness have been practicing on, on their own or clients now through virtual sessions have advocated this type of training. But there hasn't been a, a ton of scientific evidence uh, to support it. Certainly, there has been uh, a few studies, and I think we're seeing more studies now coming out. And so I think for the practitioner, uh, it is nice to know that there, these workouts have been scientifically validated, if you will. Now, many of these studies, they tend to be relatively small, they tend to be relatively short term. Um, but, you know, even some of our work has shown that six weeks of bodyweight style interval training requiring only 11 minutes per session. If mm. people did that three times a week, that's only about a half hour time commitment each week. Uh, if people did that for six weeks, we saw a measurable improvement in their fitness using the gold standard measurement, which is a, a maximal oxygen uptake test in, in a laboratory. So again, I, I think what we're finding, uh, science is, is establishing uh, the, the fitness benefits and validating, I think, some of these workouts that many individuals have been doing on their own. And again, I'd go back to this idea of we tend to rediscover this. Uh, our recent study was actually modeled after a program that the Royal Canadian Air Force had developed in the late, late 1950s mm -hmm. uh, to keep service members fit when they were stationed in the far north. So you can imagine these individuals at the height of the Cold War stationed in the far north. They didn't have fancy exercise equipment. And so the Canadian Air Force had developed this program called 5BX, which just stood for five basic exercises. Uh, and it only took 11 minutes a day. It was designed for men. There was a comparable program for women called XBX. And mm -hmm. it was essentially simple calisthenics exercises. Um, and they you know, were very effective at keeping uh, the service members fit. And so here we are, you know, 60 years later, basically applying a very similar type of protocol and showing that indeed, when we use these scientific measurements, uh, we can establish that it's beneficial for their fitness. Mm -hmm. um, I have a couple of questions about that, you know, that I'm really curious about, if you don't mind. So uh, for that workout you mentioned that was designed for uh, Air Force, um, uh, you know, people, <laughs> uh, what, what were the exercises and what was um, the protocol that made it high intensity. Uh, what I'm trying to, I guess, understand is what it, does it mean to perform a high intensity interval workout compared to just, you know, doing whatever? Yeah. So maybe let's tackle that second question first. Okay. Uh, and you're, you're right. You know, high intensity means different things to different people. And even within the scientific literature, there's no consensus. That being said, I, I think broadly speaking, high intensity means your heart rate gets above 
80% of your individual maximum during the hard intervals. Uh, there's also um, some people use the term vigorous, and mm -hmm. you know, this depends on which public health agency scale you use. But again, we're somewhere around that 80% of maximum range. And if you exceed that threshold, uh, we deem that high intensity intervals. And of course, you know, those intervals could last four or five minutes. It's, it's possible for people to, to sustain those that long. And that's distinguished from a more intense flavor of interval training uh, known as sprint interval training. And in those cases, the efforts are, are truly all out. Um, you know, I like to use the term sprint from danger pace or the pace you might uh, run at to save your child from an oncoming car. And, and so those are, broadly speaking, the, the, the two main types of interval training. Um, but I think it's also important to remember that interval training can involve something as uh, interval walking. And, and this type of training is obviously uh, much more suited to individuals who are unable or unwilling to perform very intense, uh, vigorous uh, efforts. So that, that's sort of my working definition of high intensity interval above 80% of mm -hmm. your individual maximum. And in terms of the 5BX plan, uh, the, the exercises varied, but you can think of traditional calisthenics. So jumping jacks, push-ups, air squats, split squat jumps, burpees, uh, things like that. And mm -hmm. even the original 5BX plan, it had many different levels because there was a recognition that this could be scaled to individual uh, starting fitness level. And in our recent study, we instructed individuals to perform exercise at a self-selected challenging pace. So that was the only simple description that we gave them. We would like you to exercise at a, at a, at a pace you deem challenging. And so do as many repetitions as you can within the one minute hard workouts or hard uh, bouts of exercise. And people self-selected in intensity that on average was about 83% of their, uh, of their maximal heart rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I find it very useful to just go with your own like feeling of the intensity, meaning, you know, if there is an exercise um, of any kind and the way of doing that, that um, makes a person able to do that for like four minutes or so, you know, three, four minutes, five minutes stops, and then they cannot continue, that's probably the right intensity, right? So, because a lot of people I find, they think that high intensity interval training, it's supposed to be, um, you know, a certain way, like you got to work at a certain speed with certain exercise, with certain repetitions, you know, and if you can't do that, then you can't do high intensity interval training. But, you know, from uh, what I'm hearing, it's all about your um, own um, exhaust, exhaustion, like how you are feeling while doing what you're doing. And that's going to yeah, be absolutely. Uh, no, absolutely. And for, you know, for, uh, for some individuals, obviously they like things to be highly structured and measured. And so they will want to use a heart rate monitor to know exactly what their heart rate is. Um, but that's not necessary or even preferred by other individuals. And so, you know, when we're first talking to an individual about how you might get into interval training, we'll just say to start, you know, just get out of your comfort zone, whatever you're mm -hmm. typically used to, even if it's just walking around the block, pick up the pace a little bit. So, you know, you're, you can just feel that your breathing's a little higher. You can feel that your heart rate's up a bit, maybe a little harder to talk to a friend. Uh, but again, it all goes back to this idea that it, interval training can be highly uh, individualized. And when I give scientific presentations, there's a graph that I love to show, and it's a heart rate tracing from 
two different individuals on very different ends of the fitness spectrum. One is an Olympic athlete and the other is a coronary heart disease patient. So someone with heart failure, and they're mm-hmm. doing the exact same interval program. It's just that it normalized uh, to their own uh, capacity. And I, th- I think it really makes the point that interval training can really be scaled to, to starting fitness. Yeah, to like everyone. Um, you know, I, I'm using this like workout app and they have those like great high intensity interval training workouts and they have athletes there. So I, I'm not at like that same level, but um, I always modify the movements, usually the speed or the difficulty of the movement and do whatever I can do, you know, during those four or five minutes just to match the perceived intensity. Uh, so it's hard for me, but I still still can do that. And that also, you know, allows me to, for example, bring in some individualization without having to use like some um, complex equipment. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I like to say I, I'm a proponent of interval training, but I'm not an interval training zealot because clearly, mm-hmm. you know, in, in some quarters you see a backlash against interval training. And I think that's partly because people tend to overstate the benefits or, or suggest that it's a panacea for, for all. You know, clearly there's some people that really do not like high intensity or, 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 or vigorous exercise. So I always like to try and um, work that in. That being said, I, I think one of the values of interval training is it's near infinite variety. You know, there's only mm-hmm. so many ways to jump on a treadmill and jog at a moderate pace for 45 minutes or an hour. But as you just alluded to, with interval training, it's an infinitely variety and in, in, or infinite variety in terms of, you know, the length of the intervals, the exact intensity, the nature of recovery periods, active or passive, how long the recovery periods are. Uh, and so it's, it's a very versatile style of training, I think. Yeah, um, you know, I agree with you, definitely. Um, you know, I'm curious about, uh, what I'm curious about is what are some of the results that, besides, you know, VO2 max that you can measure, but maybe um, some body composition kind of results or some other results um, performance-wise from athletes that you were able to measure or track? Like, did you do any studies like that where you measure very specific um, measurement, I guess? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, let me just put in a plug for fitness because it sometimes tends to get overlooked. And and I really like to make the point to individuals that, you know, having the epidemiological evidence will suggest that, you know, having um, a fitness that's roughly 10% higher uh, translates into, you know, a 13% lower risk of dying from all causes and a 15% lower risk of of developing cardiovascular disease. And, you know, to put that in perspective, Mm -hmm. It's similar to the risk reduction of a five-point drop in blood pressure or losing two inches or about five centimeters off your waist. And so I think some, we all know fitness is important, but I think sometimes we underappreciate just how robust a measurement it is and how important a marker um, fitness uh, is. But, you know, in... And I'm, I'm, I'm talking across a number of studies here, not only from our laboratory, but many other laboratories around the world. But generally speaking, interval training, in addition to fitness, it's been associated with improvements in a range of other health markers, uh, most notably um, insulin sensitivity, uh, which is uh, an important marker for, for diabetes risk. It basically is a measure of how well your body clears uh, blood blood sugar. And we know that interval training 
uh, can be very effective at, at boosting your insulin uh, sensitivity. You know, in terms of body composition, as I'm sure you appreciate and many of your listeners, uh, exercise is the minor player there. Clearly, exercise is important for overall fitness and conditioning. It can play a role in supporting weight management um, and calorie burning. Uh, but I think sometimes we tend to overstate the role of exercise. You know, many personal trainers will talk about the afterburn effect or this idea mm -hmm. of a heightened metabolic rate in recovery from exercise. Clearly, it's real. Uh, there's no doubt that it's higher after more intense uh, exercise than lower intensity continuous exercise. We've measured that in our own laboratory, but I think sometimes it tends to be uh, overstated. And I think if you look at the interval training studies, they will show uh, modest reductions in, in body weight or modest changes in body composition uh, by a few percentage points uh, that can be very similar to a, a much higher volume of more traditional uh, aerobic exercise. And I guess mm -hmm. last point on the performance, we've done some performance studies, but you know we, we do not work with truly elite uh, athletes, but there are studies including a recent one that, that was looking at the effects of different interval training strategies in truly elite cyclists. You know, we're talking about uh, national caliber uh, athletes here, and it, it found that actually very short, very hard sprints was better than other types of interval training at improving performance uh, in these athletes. That's not to suggest that, you know, uh, endurance cyclists should only perform by doing some short, hard intervals, but there's definitely evidence that sprint interval training can be effective for performance, including mm -hmm. in, in, in very, uh, high caliber athletes. Oh yeah. Thank you for sharing this information too. Um, you know, sometimes you hear things like, um, athletes, like people who want to run marathons, athletes specifically, uh, they might be better off by doing, you know, like some sort of high intensity interval training instead of mileage. Uh, training, but I think um, there should be a place for both when you're training specifically for um, longer events, be that cycling or running. What do you think? Yeah, agreed. And you know, I, here I turn to other experts or the opinions of other experts, and so these would be scientists who work in the field of uh, applied high-level sport. And I think the general consensus is. Um, about an 80-20 split. So 80% traditional base mileage, uh, lower intensity exercise supplemented with 20% high intensity intervals is sort of the optimal prescription to maximize performance in high level athletes. Uh, what I would add though is, you know, these are um, largely professional athletes mm -hmm. who their job is training. And so they might have 30-40 hours a week of, of training. I think that um, ratio maybe is a little bit different for what I would call, you know, high level athletes who are also regular people who are holding mm -hmm. down jobs and families and things like that, and are not training 30 or 40 hours a week. Uh, I think there, there's uh, a case to be made that perhaps a 50-50 split or a 60-40 split, I think increasing the amount of time spent in high intensity interval training uh, can be a, an effective strategy for these individuals when the overall training volume uh, is uh, is reduced. But, you know, if I got 50 coaches on the call here, there'd be 50 different opinions in terms of the best way to do it. And at the end of the day, you know, elite athletes, they are what we call experiments of one. And, and so, you know, I think you could make a case for any world record that's out there. Could it be a little bit better if an athlete had trained in this certain way? 
yes, of course, which is makes it, you know, it makes it difficult to extrapolate the training regimes of elite athletes to, uh, to more regular uh, people, but we can certainly take some general guidelines. Yeah. Uh, okay. Thank you for sharing this information. Uh, it, it all makes sense. You know, I, it all comes down very often to um, an individual level, you know, genetics and how certain people adapt to certain kinds of training can recover from them. So um, that's definitely makes sense. Um, you know, let's get back a little bit more to body composition results when it comes to high intensity interval training, because a lot of people are, you know, interested in changing that specifically lowering their body fat and uh, lowering their, their uh, weight uh, specifically. Um, a lot of people ask me if high intensity interval training compared to, let's say, um, regular normal pace kind of training, uh, when it comes to hunger, uh, did you, do you have any, um, data showing that hunger levels are different for high intensity interval training and uh, regular style of training? We, we have not measured that, but there is some research out there on that, you know, like a lot of research on almost any topic, there's some conflicting results and there's not a very clear uh, overall message. And I think right now the data is, is limited and a bit what we say equivocal, you know, not absolutely clear. Uh, and, and so there can't be a, a take home conclusion uh, right now. But there's definitely some evidence that higher intensity interval training uh, can be can affect some of these satiety uh, uh, hormones, um, including uh, reducing them. But there's also, you know, some other evidence to suggest that maybe people are a little bit more hungry after they do higher intensity exercise. So I think it's, it's probably one of those areas, it, it's highly individualized. Um, but mm -hmm. the short answer is yes, uh, the intensity of exercise can influence some of these circulating uh, hormones or compounds that are involved in satiety and, and eating. But the message right now is, is far from clear, but it's definitely an active, active area of, of research, in, including some colleagues who uh, work at universities uh, less than an hour from where I'm talking to you right now. And so I, I think we'll have some better answers to that in, in, in the coming years. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for sharing um, this uh, piece of data too, because the reason I'm talking about hundreds uh, for most people that, you know, seems to be that stumbling block that doesn't allow them to uh, get where they want to be uh, when it comes to body weight and body composition. Um, so was really curious about that. Um, yeah, and, and sorry, sorry to interrupt. If I could just add to that, like, you know, as a science, as a scientist, it, it's fascinating because ultimately, you know, any of these very practical and applied questions and very good questions that you're asking, you know, as a scientist or even as the individual out there, I think they have to think about, you know, okay, what would the mechanism be or why, why might that happen, right? So why would more intense exercise potentially alter these uh, hunger hormones such as ghrelin and things like that or influence appetite. And, and there's some very interesting basic science research around the role of uh, lactate. You know, so lactic acid obviously is something that's produced. It's produced in higher amounts when we do very intense exercise. Uh, it's an acid. And so there's some very interesting work right now looking at the influence of uh, circulating lactate on some of these uh, appetite suppressing or so-called hunger uh, hormones. So there is, you know, at least you can make a, a mechanistic argument of, of what might be going on. But again, I'd come back to this idea, this, this research, I think is still relatively early in its infancy, at, at least in terms of 
you know, applied exercise in, in humans. Yeah, applied, you know, to human hunger. Um, yeah, I, uh, the, the reason, you know, high intensity training and uh, training that is more just steady pace, they're obviously different and they engage very often different, uh, different uh, muscle tissues and uh, also different uh, metabolic pathways. And yeah, I, I'm sure, you know, they're going to affect our hormones and our hunger in a slightly or a lot different way, but we just don't know yet how exactly it all happens. Um, Correct. <laughs> yeah, so just <laughs> wanted to, I guess, repeat it to listeners uh, in a more basic language so they also could understand it a little bit better uh, why it might be the case. Um, so let's uh, talk uh, more about practical ways, I guess, for people to maybe introduce high-intensity interval training into their routine um, if they are very early into that and they want to try, try it out instead of doing, you know, like jogging or running or some sort of aerobics. Like a lot of people, you know, think that if they are losing weight right now, that they need to be like running or jogging and there is no other way around that or do some sort of um, aerobic training on elliptical machine where you just stand there for like 30, 40 minutes every single day. Um, so what are some you know, other ways that people could exercise using high-intensity interval training uh, to get, if not the same results, then close to that results or maybe even better results with spending less time? Sure. So, you know, let me, let me give you an example from, from our laboratory. So in, in, in one study, we compared a 20-minute interval session versus 50 minutes of more traditional continuous exercise. Mm -hmm. And we measured energy expenditure or basically calorie burning over the subsequent 24-hour period. And what we found was that the total calories burned uh, were, were quite similar. So it's, it was a striking example, I think, of the time efficiency of interval training in order to stimulate calorie um, burning. Now, the protocol that we used was something we called a 10 by one. So 10 one minute hard efforts with a minute of recovery in between. And I, I think that sort of one minute on, one minute off, that if you're going to start, it, it's not a bad protocol to, to, to start off with. Those one minute efforts do not need to be all out maximum. And again, you could come back to that uh, self-selected vigorous pace, or maybe a six or seven on a 10 point scale, or if you are measuring your heart rate, uh, around 80% of, of maximum. So, you know, this is vigorous exercise, but it's not all out. Mm -hmm. So 10 one minute vigorous efforts with one minute of recovery, um, that has been shown to be very similar in terms of the calorie burning as compared to 50 minutes of, of more continuous exercise. That would just be one example. And like I say, this, this one minute on, one minute off, um, it, it seems to be a type of protocol that is, is generally well accepted or tolerated by, by many different individuals. It, it, it's been applied to overweight and obese individuals with type 2 diabetes. It's been applied in a cardiac rehabilitation setting. Uh, so it's not a bad protocol for someone who's just starting out. And of course, you don't have to do 10 to start either, right? Just mm -hmm. maybe do a couple when you're first starting out. Uh, and there's evidence to show that a five by one is almost as good as a 10 by one, at least in terms of the improvement in fitness. And so I think, you know, that's another 
general rule of thumb that um, you know the, the law of diminishing returns. So you can you get a lot of bang for your buck with a couple of intervals. Uh, the more you do, it's better, but it, it's it's not a straight line uh, relationship. And and so again, for people who are time pressed or just starting out, knowing that just doing a couple uh, can still be effective is an empowering message. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, very empowering for people to understand that they can again individualize it in so many ways. And I also think, you know, with high-intensity interval training, um, at least from my experience, it seems that it's easier to, yeah, make it more flexible and include different kinds of exercises and workouts. You know, uh, what I like to do sometimes, for example, just do uh, burpees one minute on uh, at whatever pace feels, you know, sustainable for me for a certain uh, amount of um, intervals. So I would do burpees and then I would rest or do body squats and then I would do burpees again for a minute. Um, that seems to work really well and it um, involves a lot of different muscle groups. So I love this kind of, you know, workouts. But I think, you know, people can do, I don't know, body weight squats or lunges or a lot of other different exercises involving, I guess, bigger muscle groups. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, getting back to something we talked to earlier, Uh, you know, many, you know, um, a number of individuals will think that exercise is this special thing that we do. We carve out an hour in our day. And, you know, until recently, we dressed up in spandex and we had to do it in this special place, a fitness center. And obviously the pandemic has has sideswiped all of that. And so it's, it's a reminder to people that it does come back to just being active and getting in these activity bouts, exercise snacks, whatever you call them through the day and and literally maybe even setting your watch to remind you to get up and do this uh through through the day and you know some of the work out there has shown that even spreading these exercise snacks so three of these snacks through the day so you can imagine maybe 20 seconds of stair climbing in the morning uh, again at lunch and again later in the day um you know even that can have a measurable boost in your fitness it's not going to be the same as doing the public health guidelines mm-hmm. but even that small amount of exercise can be beneficial and so as you allude to the more frequent you do it spread throughout the day uh those benefits are going to add up over time and it's going to reduce the uh the negative effects of of just being sedentary um through, throughout the day you know i think even for us who those of us who are committed to exercise and are regular exercisers Uh, you know, if you work at a computer all day, you're still sedentary for a lot of the time. And and so the evidence would show that even those individuals need to break up their sedentary time because sort of your half hour or one hour of exercise once a day, it's it's not necessarily compensating for all of that sedentary time during the day. Uh, and so building in these movement breaks is very important. Yeah, you know, you actually reminded me of um, some research done at NASA, and I know about that because I talked to John Vernikas, who was a who is a former uh, director of NASA Life Sciences Department, and so they did a lot of you know studies for, um, how to like preserve muscle mass and bone density without gravity, and they on Earth they simulated it by not making people not move literally and so what they found is what counteracted that negative effect of that immobility is frequent uh, movement so every every 30 minutes or so they would uh, ask people to like do simple stuff like stand up sit down a few times and get back to (laughs) to basically doing nothing and uh, lying in bed so um, since then i'm kind of practicing the same stuff just do something every 30 minutes 
No, for sure. Uh, you know, some of the work of my colleague, Dr. Stuart Phillips, who's obviously well known in the protein area and strength training and nutrition area, they've shown that even two weeks of immobilization, uh, you can lose about 20% of your muscle mass. And so this can happen very, very quickly. And, and so as you allude to, one of the best countermeasures to that is, uh, is, is brief exercise of, of sufficient intensity. And here we're talking, you know, resistance type uh, exercise, which we can achieve through, through bodyweight training. So you know, all of our discussions here are, are, are focusing on a central theme. And, and of course, the, the, the strength training and muscle building element is, is arguably just as important as the fitness side, especially as we age. Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, muscle is that active tissue that can um, suck up uh, excess glucose and create all these different metabolites that we are only now discovering that have beneficial effects on our whole body health. And plus, you know, it seems that the more muscle we carry, the better bone density, and that correlates with the whole, you know, spectrum of health benefits, uh, especially as we age. Um, so definitely, I think you know, resistance training, incorporating it into our um, Interval training also has additional benefits. I, I think that's where the body weight training comes in. You know, again, pre-pandemic, I used to call it sort of it was a nice middle ground type of training in that, you know, the body weight training obviously is going to help develop strength. And, and if you keep the recovery period short, you're going to get that cardiovascular boost as well. You know, it's not going to be the same as uh, completely traditional endurance training, and it's not going to be the same as heavy weight training, but it's going to give you this sort of middle ground uh, benefits in, in, in both of those areas. So I, I think it's a highly practical type of exercise. It can be very beneficial again, certainly through the times that we're, we're living in. Yeah. And you know, another thing that I noticed about, uh, that kind of training, like middle ground, um, at least from my clients, also for myself, that it doesn't, um, make you as exhausted and as hungry, meaning like, you know, I don't feel as, um, tired and that I need to eat because I did the, all this training and that uh, in the long run helps to also uh, manage our eating habits better and also our recovery better that like again a long term produces usually produces better results when we are not in that state when we feel like you know, we need to rest more and eat more because of our training great um, yeah interesting yeah, so what do you think about, by the way, recovery, like for high-intensity interval training? Do people need to pay more attention to that or the same amount of attention or like it's like, I don't know, uh, the same kind of rest that you usually would get, like just sleep enough? And what do you yeah, you know, like everything, it depends, I think, on the individual and it, it certainly depends on, on the type of interval training. And so if we're talking about, you know, high force uh, movements that involve a lot of eccentric uh, loading, which, you know, body weight training could be, or, or think of things like, um, uh, you know, box jumps or, or that sort of thing. There's a lot of uh, eccentric movement there. And we know that it's eccentric movement that causes the most uh, muscle soreness, causes the most skeletal muscle damage. Uh, that's going to be quite different from about a very intensive cycling or mm -hmm. elliptical even, which, you know, uh, can be done in a very intense manner, but we don't have the same eccentric or, or loaded uh, movement. So it, it definitely depends on the type of interval training that you're talking about. Generally speaking, though, I think higher intensity exercise can take a little bit more uh, recovery, certainly when people are first starting out. You know, when people are first introduced to interval training, more vigorous exercise, uh, they tend to be more tired afterwards. And, and that's, you know, there's a metabolic origin to that. You deplete your muscle glycogen uh, more. 
Uh, so that can be associated with, with more muscle fatigue. And if it is uh, loaded type exercise, they're going to be more sore afterwards uh, as well. Um, you know, anyone who's exercised know that that uh, initial soreness is, is quite transitory. And, and even if we, you do a couple of workouts, uh, you're not as sore or tired uh, uh, afterwards. But it, it's definitely something that I think people need to keep in mind. But again, it's highly individual. I, I can prescribe the exact same interval training program to two people. One person's going to absolutely thrive on it, and the other person is going to break down because they're just not, uh, it, it, it's not suitable for them. So, you know, it comes back to these knowing yourself. And, you know, these are a bit wishy washy answers, but uh, anyone who's exercised knows that you, you know, listen to your body. You really just have to be smart, especially when you're first starting out. And, you know, come back to this one size fits all message. It, it just does not apply to any type of exercise. Uh, and certainly for uh, for interval training. So, you know, you'll you'll pick up the magazine article and it'll say never do interval training more than once a week. Or mm-hmm. if you do it five times a week, you'll you'll break down. You know, we all know athletes that absolutely thrive on basically interval training almost every day uh, of the week. But I, I think it's important that we say that's not the type of training for everyone. And so these these absolute hard and fast rules that you'll often read, uh, I think you have to be skeptical of those and, and take them with a grain of salt. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I agree on that. You know, in, in my personal experience, uh, I know that when I do my own like high intensity interval training, I need more sleep. So I just turn off alarm and allow my body to rest as much as it needs to. And when I do things like yoga, you know, my sleep uh, time usually uh, is shorter, uh, one hour shorter or, or so. And I think, yeah, allowing that flexibility like each of us needs to allow ourselves that flexibility to kind of learn from our own experience. Yeah. And I guess the last point would be, of course, you know, vary it up. And we're going back to, again, training fundamentals, things like periodization, where if you go through a period of hard interval training for three or four weeks, uh, then take a couple of weeks where you're, you're taking it uh, easier. And, and again, this idea of just varying up your training is uh, that I think that's just an absolutely excellent strategy for uh, for anyone. Now, of course, if you absolutely just like one type of exercise, you want to do that all the time. Uh, that's better than not doing anything at, at all. So again, it, it does come back a little bit to what works for you. But ideally, I, I think we like to see it varied up over time, both to prevent boredom. And of course, you're con- constantly challenging the body in different ways then. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. The most important thing is uh, keep moving <laughs> in whatever way you like and can. Um, you know, it's it's a bit like, you know, you'll read, oh, it's better to exercise in the morning after an overnight fast. And, mm-hmm. you know, that may be technically true. And you may eke out a couple more calories burned from fat if you exercise on an empty stomach in the morning. But if you're not a morning person or you're someone who absolutely needs to have food in your gut before you exercise that message is lost on you. And so again, I, I think it really does come down to finding out what you like and enjoy and, and sticking with that over the long term is going to be the best approach. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that completely. Uh, and Martin, can you share with our listeners, please, what do you personally do based you know, on all the science, all the research that uh, you do indeed? Like, how now do you design your own training routine? Yeah, uh, sure. And and of, of course, this works for me. I'm not suggesting that this is the way that people should do their own training or optimize it. Uh, part of the reason I got interval tr- into interval training, I write about this in my book, is you know, 20 years ago, I was a, a new professor at McMaster, quite busy. 
Uh, I have a working spouse. We had two young children at the time. I found myself with little time to exercise. And so I, I sort of tried it myself and, and found that it was, it was quite effective. And, and so, you know, fast forward now 20 years, I, I, I train or I exercise or I'm active at least most days of the week. I tend to alternate uh, between uh, bodyweight style interval training mixed with some traditional uh, lifting um, you know, we're talking, uh, cleans and, and fundamental exercises like deadlifts, some of those uh, types of things. And on the days in between then it's, it's typically, uh, cycle based, uh, interval, uh, training. Uh, I have left knee osteoarthritis, so I, I can't run anymore, but I can, uh, cycle quite intensely. Uh, and, uh, until, you know, the pandemic, I, I played ice hockey once a week as well. Uh, you know, many team sports have an interval training uh, base to it. And, and so that type of exercise works for me. Rarely do I work out for more than uh, 30 minutes uh, at a time. Uh, but I've found this to be uh, an excellent way personally uh, to maintain my, my fitness and, and strength as I've uh, aged over time. Uh, and I'm fortunate, you know, I have a typical garage gym set up uh, in my basement. It's, it's not fancy. I have some kettlebells. I have a rack. I have a bike. Uh, but I also uh, you know, I, I used to train in a facility, but uh, now I, I, I basically have it at, at home and it, and it works very well for me. And it's particularly worked well over the last year uh, because my fitness routine has changed very little from uh, before the pandemic because I mainly do it uh, by myself at home. And I'm fortunate to have uh, access to some of the equipment that I need. Last question was, uh, so when, you, when it comes to your um, cycling training, that is more of a cardio type of training, I guess, traditional cardio type of training that people might think um, about, uh, what kind of uh, intervals do you use uh, on a regular basis? Or, you know, do you make them different every time? Or are they kind of the same, like the minutes, the... Uh, yeah, no. So, uh, you know, and so my cycle training, it, it you know, it, it's cardio based, but it, it, it's, it's almost always intervals. I, I would say once a month, I might do uh, 30 minutes of continuous cycling on the bike, but otherwise it's invariably intervals. Um, often I will do uh, five, four minute hard efforts with a minute in between. And so again, with a little bit of warm up, uh, that takes about uh, 30 minutes. So I, I would say that's a very common one for me, uh, five, uh, four minute efforts mm -hmm. and those four minute efforts, you know, I'm, I'm getting up to 85 or 90% of my, uh, my maximal heart rate. Uh, sometimes I'll do this 10 by one. So you're going for a minute hard and, and, you know, there the intensities or the workload settings, uh, would be higher of course. And in, in mm -hmm. the four minutes, um, but I would say that five, four minute workout is, is sort of a staple, uh, for me. It, it's still interval based. I'm still changing things up, but it's not like every minute I'm having to uh, change the workload setting. So it's sort of a nice middle ground interval program, if you will, for me. Okay. Um, I understand. And uh, what about warm, warm up and cool down? Do you do any of that before your training? Yeah. So for, uh, it, it's interesting, uh, you know, even on the bike, my warm up has extended a little bit, you know, now some, sometimes, you know, I, I used to only do one or two minutes. Now it's basically a, a five minute uh, warm up. Uh, of course, you know, one of the things, if you want time efficiency, uh, you can't spend a ton of time warming up and cooling down or detracts <laughs> from it. Uh, but, you know, my warm up on the bike is, is a standard progressive stepwise uh, increase. Uh, and definitely, you know, I've come to appreciate uh, the importance of warm up before I, I lift now. And so there I'm always cycling for five or 10 minutes and trying to do some, you know, very light 
movement simulations uh, before uh, before I lift. So I, I've definitely come to uh, appreciate more the the role of warm up, even if it's just five or ten minutes. But um, uh, it, it is something now I do uh, all the time before I do any type of more vigorous exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think. I personally believe that warm up is very important, you know, just to start that blood circulation going and uh, um, preventing injuries, of course, warming everything up. And for me, it's also, you know, about like kind of feeling through different movements that you are about to perform at um, higher intensity to um, feel if that your body is okay, you know, today and everything is working as it's supposed to be working. Um, so I'm also a huge believer in warm up and also cool down. You know, these days I do a lot of uh, foam rolling that seems to help a lot with recovery um, from different workouts. Uh, do you do any way, by, by the way, any foam rolling? I'm just such a huge fan of that lately. Yeah, interesting. I, you know, I've, I I have purchased one and I will do it. You know, I, I you know, as, as a scientist, I know it's very controversial and the evidence is not great. The evidence isn't even great for... Uh, for stretching or massage or foam rolling, any of these <laughs> modalities, but uh, certainly I, I, you know, it, it, it's a good hurt, if you will, you know, that's a common refrain, I, I, I think. And so, uh, yes, I, I, I have adopted some foam rolling uh, myself just to try and help with these aches and tweaks and that, that you invariably uh, get, uh, you know, I, I don't know physiologically if it's doing anything for me, but it does at least tend to feel a little bit better. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's certainly at least half the battle. Uh, yeah, um, you know, f- feeling better for sure. Some clients uh, of mine, though, joke that uh, it made them, like, I suggest it as a relaxing uh, kind of thing. And they're like, are you kidding? It's more like uh, something you would use in jail. <laughs> People would want to hurt more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, certainly some of those spots, it's more like you're, you know, hitting yourself with a hot poker on those certain areas. But, uh, you know, uh, again, whatever works for you. Yeah, I uh, I agree on that completely. So thank you, Martin, for this uh, amazing conversation about exercise, high-intensity interval training, movement, and getting healthier and fitter in a smarter way, um, if I can say so. Uh, so is there anything else uh, you'd like to add or maybe a final piece of advice that you'd like to give to our listeners to um upgrade their training or at least, I don't know, get better results uh, with more. Yeah, I, I, I would just give a plug to something. It's it's a free resource. So I, I mentioned my colleague, Dr. Stuart Phillips, and I, uh, through our university, McMaster, uh, we co-developed um, what's called a massive open online course or a MOOC. Uh, mm-hmm. It's basically 25 uh, video modules, about five minutes uh, each. It's called Hacking Exercise uh, for Health. And it offers some practical tips on um, training for cardio as well as uh, strength training. More designed, I think, for the uh, for the beginner, but there might be some tips in there that are relevant. Uh, it's offered through the Coursera. Yeah, platform. I think I found it uh, online. So um, again, it's hacking exercise for what's the name? Health for health. Hacking exercise for health. Yeah, it actually came up uh, in my Google search when I was doing some searching for links, um, you know, about the university and uh, in your work. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely going to link that in the show notes. Um, is there anything else uh, uh, you'd like where, 
you'd like people to go, maybe check out some more information, connect with you, you know, the best places where people can learn more about your work and um, what kind of research you might be up to? Yeah, of course. I'm not a huge presence on social media, but I, I do have a Twitter. So you could follow me at Gabala M or uh, martingabala.com. You could find information uh, on the book or the course or uh, some other uh, podcasts, some of our media stuff, uh, mm -hmm. as well as uh, uh, anything related to our scientific publications uh, is all there. So those would be the, I think, the two uh, best ways to, uh, to touch base uh, or, or reach out. Okay, great. Thank you. I'm going to make sure that everything is linked in the show notes so people can find it without, um, you know, any more um, time or trouble. And um, thank you again for joining me on this podcast and sharing all this information and your personal practice uh, um, in, in a way that is, I think, simple and people can start using it right away for their benefits. So thank you, Martin, for your time. Yeah, thank you again, Angela, for your interest, and uh, great to be back uh, on uh, on your show. Just uh, wish your listeners uh, the best. Uh, stay well and be safe. Thank you very much. Uh, we all really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you.